welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Oh, folks, we'll turn again to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we've already gotten an important nugget of wisdom from this book. Last Sunday, Solomon reminded us that no matter how far we succeed in this life, uh, the ripple that we will leave behind is at best temporal. Future generations will eventually forget us, but the legacy that we leave behind for Christ will endure for eternity. Uh, This divine insight, this wisdom, then prompts us, how are we going to invest our lives? What shall we build? Which kingdom should we be working on? But the truth, really, in the truth in irony exists, and it is this. Although future generations on earth forget us, God never will. God never will. It's worth a moment just to reinforce that point before moving forward into our next passage. In the final book of the Old Testament, that is Malachi, and through the prophet Malachi, God is shown as rebuking the nation of Israel, giving them a rebuke. Uh, Israel inquired uh, about how they had spoken against God, uh, against this charge God had said, you have spoken against me. So Israel replies, saying, And how did we speak against you? And this is God's reply in Malachi 3, verse 14. You have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His charge? Then next, Malachi writes this summary of reassurance from God. He says, Then those who feared the Lord, changing Subjects now, those who feared the Lord, spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. They will be mine, says the Lord Yahweh of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So, Israel is assured, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. So the Lord here, uh, Yahweh, assures everyone that they will be remembered. They will be remembered uh, in a book. In a book. Uh, You probably won't be surprised to learn that the New Testament Uh, closes in much the same way as the Old Testament. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 details the opening of the books. There's a set of books containing an exhaustive record of every damned person's evil deeds. Every person condemned. Each evil deed is recorded, and they are punished accordingly in the books uh, to the eternal lake of fire. Then there's another book, just a book, not a set of books, but a book called the Book of Life, containing the same, those names of those who believed in Jesus as Savior, and those redeemed 
are not punished according to their sins, not punished according to what they've done because Jesus has already endured all of their punishment for them on the cross. Instead, every Christian is rewarded in eternity according to their faithful service to Christ. So it is not in vain uh, by which we serve Him. And so although Solomon in our last passage, laments that future generations will not remember him. Uh, God surely does. He surely does. Uh, Folks, that is immense wisdom. That is immense wisdom for us who are uh, struggling through this world. uh, To know that our faithfulness is not in vain. It will be rewarded. Yet we talked, that could be a whole second sermon for that first passage opening in, in Ecclesiastes, but we talked so much about uh, eternity and faithfulness and rewards in Luke. Uh, we're just going to keep moving on to verse 12 today. That's where we find ourselves. This next passage, it's not as elusive as it first appears to us. It shows Solomon is again frustrated because even with his immense wisdom, it's enormous wisdom. He remains powerless to fix his surrounding conditions, which, which brings him much grief. Much grief. Grief because a remedy to the human problems that he sees around him, uh, he's found that no remedy exists under the sun. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 12. Uh, we will strive to identify uh, Solomon's troubles. I, uh, the preacher have been king over Israel uh, in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that have been done under the sun. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and in increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Boy, do you feel the pain? Solomon is feeling the pain. What, what an enormous quandary that he faces. And, and Solomon perceives that, that this corresponds, what he perceives corresponds directly to modern day. It's exactly what we're dealing with today as Christians in a fallen society. Solomon has been tirelessly searching under the sun, under heaven, uh, for a remedy to the human affliction called depravity. Our statement of faith describes man's condition as, as total depravity. You know, total depravity acknowledges the heart of every man is desperately sick desperately sick who can understand it said the the prophet jeremiah now total total depravity does not insist all are equally sick doesn't insist we're all as sick as we could be 
but that all of our moral faculties, everything that we do, everything we're involved in, uh, we're, we're all doomed. We're all doomed by a septic infection. It's a systemic infection throughout us called sin. And, and under the sun, there exists no remedy for it. No remedy at all. Mankind's moral corruption, it results in, in a social disorder that has made the wisest man who has ever lived want to pull his hair out. He's just, he's had it in disgust. But before I discuss why exactly, notice Solomon's reintroduction of himself in verse 12. He says this again, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now you're pretty smart people, right? How many kings throughout history ruled over Israel from Jerusalem? Say two. Two. See, I, said, I knew you were smart. <laughs> to rule over all of Israel from Jerusalem, there were only two. It was David and Solomon. You know, this is because uh, after Solomon's death, the twelve tribes, the sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes uh, were divided and there came, they became actually divided under uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the actions that he did. And it got divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom with ten tribes to the north, and they were ruled out of Samaria. And remaining then in the south were just the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And that tribe in the south was called Judah, and that was, that was ruled from uh, Jerusalem. So there exists only two kings that ruled over a completely united kingdom from, the, from Jerusalem. So who besides Solomon could claim to be a son of David and actually write Ecclesiastes? There were no others. There were no other kings. Hezekiah couldn't have said this. None of the other kings could have said, his, said it as well. Were there other kings before David? This comes up sometimes in, in this book when Solomon says, I'm, I was wiser than any of the kings. Oh, there were pagan kings. Was there also a believing king king reigning from Jerusalem way back in the Old Testament? Anybody know who I'm talking about? A king that ruled from Salem? Melchizedek. So there were rulers before David. There were kings of the Canaanites that ruled from Jerusalem before David. But being a son of David, there's only one who ruled over the United Kingdom. It, It... It fell apart immediately when Rehoboam uh, took charge from his father. So, uh, in verse 13, and we see Solomon here uh, again drawing attention to himself as king, considering all kings, not just David and Solomon, but all that would come after and all who were before. How many kings were as qualified as Solomon to, to set his mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. Who, who could be as qualified as Solomon? His latest quest to determine whether wisdom can supply an ultimate meaning for man, or, or at least help us to make sense out of it all, uh, everything that he has witnessed under the sun, he's trying to make sense of what he sees. And, and under heaven and under the sun, those two phrases there, they're... they're They're synonymous. Both are used to describe what Solomon sees apart from the heavenly realm. Everything he sees under the sun. He's speaking exclusively from the natural realm. 
And beyond Solomon, in the natural realm, who could possibly enjoy a better vantage point in order to try and make sense out of life? God assured Solomon in 1 Kings 3.12, Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been none like you before, none also shall not rise after you with more wisdom than Solomon. So none were more wise and discerning than Solomon. He's, he's the smartest guy. Smartest guy who ever ruled there. And for the Israelite, when it says that, that God gave Solomon a wise and discerning heart, for the Israelite, the heart was, was not describing the, the, the emotional center that processes emotions. We, we often get tricked into that today by our modern society. We try to govern everything by our heart, how we feel. What are my emotions telling me? Follow your emotions, you get told, right? Well, that's not what Israel would do. They didn't follow their emotions. The Hebrew word for heart, for the Israelite, it specified not the processing center of emotions, but it pointed to the processing center of the intellect. The heart is the mind for the Israelite. Now, this is why the same Hebrew word that is translated uh, mind in our passage today is the same word as heart in the Hebrew. Uh, God doesn't lead us, folks, according to what we feel. God leads us according to what we know. Amen? It's what we have learned in His Word. Christians, we surely experience raw emotions. They're very real. They impact us. But we are to react intelligently according to what God has spoken in His Word. That is how we are to respond for situations. So, if you've got a young, uh, a young lady who says, well, I've got a boyfriend and... Uh, you know, we really get along great. He's really nice to me. He says that he loves me, but he's not ready to get married, but he wants me uh, uh, to move in with him. And, and, and she'd say, but it just really feels so right. Do we go by being governed by what we feel? No, we go by what God's Word says and what we know. It'd be the same with a young gentleman. Young Christian gentleman who has a, has a, a girlfriend that, he, that he's that he's met, and she doesn't appear to be a Christian, and has no fruit of being a Christian, doesn't, doesn't want to be part of the, of the redeemed body of Christ. And he goes, well, you know, I, I really, really think I could change her, you know, if I would just marry her, because I really, really like her. She makes me get goosebumps on my arm, you know. That's thinking with the emotions, where God's Word would tell us not to marry uh, be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So just a good illustration there where, where we should be governed in our lives by what we know, not by what we feel. Because our feelings, uh, they're fleeting. They, they, can, they can lead us astray. Looking again at verse 13, the words he uses for seek and explore mean that he studied exhaustively. Solomon studied intently. All types of human activity under the sun. He's talking politics, finance, government, education, a medical industry, uh, um, public discourse, social discourse, uh, military. Everything he has studied under the sun. Uh, obviously all contaminated 
with sin. And Solomon assures us he studied everything. Studied everything under the sun. And he, inclu- he concluded what? Verse 13. So it, it's a grievous task. A grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Sons of men there is literally in the Hebrew, sons of Adam. So it means children of Adam, the, the progeny of Adam. It includes not just the Israelites, it's all mankind. All of the sons of Adam this applies to. It refers to those descendants uh, of Adam throughout all history. So it doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter what country you're in, doesn't matter what age you live in, or what culture you grew up. Everyone on the planet is afflicted with this same evil task of trying to make sense out of what they see. To say, make sense out of life. And what they observe. Of course, not all are equally wise, right? Not all are equally tormented by what they observe. Some people seem to be able to just go through life without even thinking at all about what's going around them. Uh, Things like sanctity of life, abortion, I just don't think about it, they say. And they just go on about their life. So not everyone is equally wise. Not all are equally tormented by the evil they see. But all are doomed to the same hopeless misery. They look around, you see it. Something isn't right. Something is wrong with society. And Solomon sees it. Take a breath. Take a deep breath. It gets a little worse before it gets better. Is that okay? It's a little worse. Then we're going to turn it back again and it will get better. Um, for emphasis, in verse 14, Solomon repeats his claim. He says, I have seen all the works, all activities, all endeavors, all human pursuits, everything that man does. English Standard Version says, everything that is done under the sun. And behold, Solomon says, all is vanity and striving after the wind. You know, when when Solomon uses the the word all there, the Hebrew word all, do you know what that means in the original Hebrew? All. Yeah. Everything. He said nothing is ruled out on this. It It all, everything he studied, every endeavor the children of Adam pursue, he studied it. And his conclusion is, mankind is, is just utterly hopeless. Completely hopeless. Why so sad? Why is he so sad? Why does he see everything as so bleak? Why does it hurt so much? Well, his next statement clarifies, and this is absolutely profound. This is profound. It reaches the pinnacle of uh, biblical proverbial uh, form. Here, here it is, verse 15. Look, with it, look at it with me. What is crooked cannot be straightened. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Boy, if we can grasp what Solomon says here, what he means in this statement right here, the balance of this passage is all going to make sense. It's going to be all downhill. We're free form after this. This this is if we can just get this one verse. For Solomon, think about it. Which human activities are crooked? All of them, right? Right? Which among our works are lacking? 
All of them, right? What are they lacking? At least under heaven, under the sun, what are they lacking? Well, they, they lack a suitable explanation for why things are like they are. Who can explain it? Who can understand what we see? You ever watch TV recently? He's like, who can make sense of any of this? So it lacks a suitable explanation why humans always fall short. Number two, all of our works are lacking perfect moral integrity. Just no one's doing right. Everyone's sick. What is it that infects every human transaction by every son or daughter of Adam? It's sin. And everything that goes on, no matter where you look, it's tainted by it. Everything has the taste of something being wrong, no matter what human institution you look at. Now, Solomon isn't suggesting in this verse that man can't make a perfectly straight uh, I-beam. Or that man can't uh, take a bent piece of I-beam and then straighten it again. He also isn't talking about or suggesting if you lack three marbles. That you can't somehow find three more marbles and put them in together and have a complete set of marbles. Alright? Is anybody here lacking a set of marbles? (laughs) You see, he's not talking about the literal product here that there's an I-beam that just can't be straightened or there's a number, a checkbook that just won't balance. He isn't talking about that. For Solomon, he's not searching for a perfectly made product or a checkbook that balances out. It was a quest of his to find perfect human integrity anywhere. Is it anywhere? Is any place that I look is in any is in any activity under the sun is there perfect moral integrity anywhere? And his quest has come up empty. And therefore Solomon is abandoning it. He said I've studied it exhaustively. I've looked at everything. I'm the wisest guy who ever lived. And every institution is hopelessly corrupted. Decisions by every school board, each corporation, all business transactions, every decree by a government, every human relationship, every church, all are tainted by sin. And Solomon has never found anyone who always deals perfectly straight. Is that true? Have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All of us are tainted by it. All of our emotions are distorted by it. Solomon's determined that even with all of his wisdom, all that he knows, no matter how hard he racks his brain, no matter how long he dwells upon it or thinks about it, no matter how many hours he invests in this laboratory, under the sun, trying to observe and figure out how to fix things. He's discovered that there is no formula that he can come up with that will fix society. It can't be fixed. It's completely hopeless, he said. Praise God, Solomon has figured this out. Have you figured this out? That the heart of man is desperately sick. 
And everything that mankind does is tainted by sin. There's no venture that man pursues that will be perfectly straight, nor can it be made perfect. There will always be something lacking that can never be accounted for. Man just falls short. And Solomon in his his immense wisdom concluded this, there's got to be some kind of solution. And he kept again and again, I've got to find a solution for all the sin, for all the corruption. I've got to find a fix somehow to all of this that I see. Folks, Solomon's looking for a miracle. That is what he is searching for. But searching under the sun, meaning in the natural realm, because he's just explaining under the sun. Searching under the sun, he says, I haven't been able to find it. The computers will not compute. The accounts can't be reconciled. There's something lacking in the heart of every man. And it just doesn't add up. They're desperately sick. Desperately sick. And what is missing in the heart, it can't be accounted for. At least it can't be accounted for under the sun. Folks, do you know, there are typically about, there's not a a hard, fast rule, but there are typically about five criteria that theologians use to distinguish uh, which books of the Bible are canonical. Canonical means that it belongs in the Bible, that it fits. One of them is, and these are kind of my own titles I've put together, one of them is antiquity. Has Israel, have the people of Israel, and the church always embraced it as the Word of God? That's one. Has it been around from the very beginning, from when it was first written? Has it withstood time, and has the church stood with it from the beginning? That is antiquity. A second one is congruity. Is the book's message in harmony with the rest of the Bible? Is it giving the same message or does it contradict somehow? A third could be called originality. I called it that because uh, we have to question, does the book originate from a credible source, from an apostle, from a prophet, someone whom Israel and the church knew personally? Is it original? A fourth one could be called transformity. I just made that word up. That's not a real word. Does the content of the book wield the power to transform lives? Is it transformative? But most important of all the books, as Gerald was sharing with us earlier during our uh, announcement time, most important of all the books is Christology. Christology. Since Jesus himself says that these are the scriptures that testify about me, does the book point to the Messiah as the remedy of everything on earth that always falls short? Does it point to the remedy being beyond us rather than within us? Does it point 
to the brokenness of humanity that's so profound there must be a deity. Folks, in Ecclesiastes, he's got it. I mean, we're not even a chapter in yet. And he's already pointed to the royal Davidic uh, dynasty that's coronated in Christ himself. That was in the opening. Now, we haven't even finished the whole first chapter yet, and Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, by the way, the wisest, declares among all man's brokenness everything that he has found under the sun, there is no way to fix it. No way to fix it whatsoever. Nothing can straighten it. There's nothing that can account for what has been lacking. Folks, who does that point to? Oh, left alone to ourselves, our existence, it's meaningless. This is just humanity left alone. Our existence is meaningless. Our condition is hopeless. And what is so clearly crooked can never be straightened unless God Himself intervenes and takes care of it Himself. The solution for man's depravity must originate from beyond man. Someone else has to step in because our capabilities are so finite in ourselves. Someone beyond us must step in and heal man's affliction. Who would that be? Folks, the solution to our sin that distorts everything we touch can only be remedied through the sinless perfection of Christ. It's the only thing that can fix it. Nothing else can even come close. Jesus is the only straight shooter who has ever lived. The only one whose righteousness was never seen lacking. And the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3 verse 5, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Folks, now is there hope? Through Christ, is there a remedy? Oh, there's a remedy. In verse 16, Solomon reiterates the failure of human wisdom to find a solution to man's sickness. He goes, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. He isn't bragging. He's just simply acknowledging what God has said by God's very word. This is the way that it is. Solomon has been given human wisdom superior to any mortal who's ever lived. And Solomon concluded wisdom, it's futile. It can't fix it. Well, should therefore be more than just a little alarming to us that throughout the course of history and still today, remains today, sinful man continues to hope in the advancement of wisdom in order to fix this society. All of man's hope is in wisdom. 
You know, isn't that what the parents have always told us? Isn't that what parents are told today? That the hope is in a better education? If we just educate these kids better, get them smarter, eventually they're going to be able to fix all this stuff. Think you're going to get them smarter than Solomon? That's what the lobbyists in Washington tell us. You know, if your children were only better educated, then they could solve all of the world's problems. The hope is in man. Man will find a way to fix himself. They suggest, of course, that this can only begin to happen after workers who are members of their unions can be paid appropriately. Then we'll fix it. Right? And I'm all, I'm all for paying, paying teachers generously. But aren't they supposedly supposed to be teaching the exact same reading, writing, and arithmetic that we learned a generation ago? Isn't it supposed to be the same? As far as I'm aware, there's nothing new in these subjects under the sun. Four plus four is still eight, right? Ten percent of fifty is still five? Adverbs and adjectives and pronouns and writing and composition, it hasn't changed much, has it? Then why do our children keep doing so poorly? When most of them are getting a poorer education, not all, but most of them throughout our nation are getting a poorer education than what my generation received decades ago. Folks, a a secular education is not the answer. Society's problems, humanly, are insoluble. We can't educate our way out of them. That's never going to happen. What children are lacking is that their, their hearts need to be accounted for. They need to know Jesus Christ is Savior. That's the only thing that can help society at all. Uh, Folks, they had similar problems in Solomon's day. And what our schools, what our teachers, what our children all need to be made aware of is that there's no hope under the sun. The only hope is Jesus Christ and nothing less. They're sinners who need to trust in a Savior. You know, we used to catechize even in our public schools, at least to some level. Teachers were allowed to cite the Ten Commandments and teach the children what is right and what is wrong. Murder is bad. Idols are bad. We used to be able to at least reference to them uh, these commandments so that they would know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and then we can explain to them God's grace. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. You can't do that in school anymore. Consequently, since you can't mention Christ and God and the law and Scripture in school anymore, is there anything remaining in public school that is left that can fix this problem we're in? Nothing. There is no hope whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. Don't place your hope in education to climb America out of the mess that we are in. 
Virtually the same is true of politics. If it continues to void and then eject Christianity, can any form of government save us? Government can't save men. They can, they can never save us. Does man's hope, do Christians hope, does our hope rest in preserving a majority on a court or in a congress? Is that where our hope is? Don't think that Solomon didn't observe all the works of man under the sun, that it didn't include also government. What do you think that he saw in government in his time? Corruption. It was a theocracy. They had the perfect law of God. The man still corrupted it. He saw neighboring nations. He saw that man left to himself under the sun is hopeless. I imagine that Solomon often volunteered his own wisdom to help to solve disputes, to solve uh, treaty problems with neighboring nations, to volunteer what God had given him as a gift to try to remedy his neighbors around him. He discovered man's just irrational. Man's irrational and self-destructive. Uh, within, within the parameters of human wisdom, folks, w- just with human wisdom, you can't fix them. You can't fix government with just the parameters of human wisdom. If Christ is not involved, there's nothing you can do to fix them. Solomon says in verse 17, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after the wind. And we're going to go after madness and folly next week. But for Solomon, his intelligence and the level of his intelligence and his wisdom, it probably drove him nuts just looking at all the crazy things that were going on around him. You ever feel that way? With the wealth of knowledge, knowledge and understanding that he possessed, uh, Solomon could have brokered the perfect peace deal. He could have balanced the budget every time. He's a smart guy. Could have had the perfect, perfect trade deals, finest peace summits, best set of laws to govern a nation. They already had that. Do you think in all his wisdom that he was able to permanently fix anything? Nope. Couldn't do it. He watched the trade negotiations fall apart. He watched... Man fail time and time again. Agreements would be cast aside year after year. It nearly drove Solomon crazy because in wisdom, in much wisdom, there's grief. And in increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. When you possess a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom, and then you have to watch man repeatedly self-destruct, is it a little bit of painful? I just have a little wisdom. And it's painful to me just to have to watch what's going on. can't imagine for Solomon. It feels hopeless. You look around, see what is going on. And apart from hope in Christ, you can't fix it. Nothing that will fix it. All is vanity and striving after the wind. Folks, there's essentially no God left in our schools or in our government not singling out these institutions 
uh, just to be hard on them. You could go on to Wall Street and Main Street and our military and every other institution that we've built. And there's essentially no God left in any of them. There's no hope of fixing what is twisted or what is lacking under the sun without Christ. Hope must come from above. Before I close, you're like, oh man, that's just depressing. Can we leave now? Before I close, let's amplify what we need to do as Christians. We need to do as Christians. Let me draw attention to what Solomon is not saying first. He's not saying that human wisdom has no value at all. He's not saying that. Wisdom has enormous value in every institution and in everything we do. If you're a teacher or if you're a political leader, uh, the wisdom that you share will temper this affliction. Don't, Don't get the feeling that wisdom is of no value whatsoever. What Solomon is saying is that human wisdom can never fix what is broken in a man's soul. We can't depend upon it to change humanity. The wisdom for that has to come from above. No other source that we can mine. What I would do as a pastor is I would advise a church to respond how in this passage? Prayerfully. Prayerfully. I would advise us to stop putting so much hope in human institutions. Technological advancements to save us. They can't. They cannot save us. Far too much is crooked that cannot be straightened. And far too much is lacking that can't be accounted for. There's no way. Why do we keep looking to them then to fix the problems that we see around us? For Christians, we have to vest our hope in Christ. To to vest it in anything less is sin. And until Christians begin to really figure this out, to really figure this out, it's going to continue to get more and more painful until we start to rely on what Christ has left us. What Christ's church has broadly failed to do for decades and longer as the institutions of marriage and family and government and society fall apart, as they disintegrate, what the church has failed to do is proclaim the gospel and inform our neighbors that repentance for salvation is offered through Christ Jesus. That's the last thing we want to do. We'd rather hope that maybe we can maintain balance in a court or in a Congress. Folks, we've placed far too much faith in lobbying, in laws, and in litigation. Who's our Savior? Who are we trusting in? And if you're truly a Christian and you invest your your whole being, your whole heart, in maintaining a one or a three or a five-seat majority in a human institution, in the Congress or in the courts, how much room has been left in your heart to be truly witnessing? 
to seek out opportunities to share the gospel. We've squeezed Christ out of our lives and inserted an alternative. Yet we are set apart to God and commissioned to proclaim the good news of His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. If we abandon the power that God has given us in His Word and in the Gospel, and if we neglect to name the name of Jesus Christ, and in lieu of it, insert another remedy that appears for a season or so to, to be more expedient for our comfort? What do you suppose God might do? Do you think maybe He might take away some of that comfort? Comfort? He sure might. If you've been trusting, if I've been trusting in something else besides what God has left us behind, you think He might take away a little bit of our comfort? Folks, sometimes pain is good. Pain is really good. Solomon felt it. Solomon had to look for a solution. We need to look for the same. Solutions, Jesus Christ. I think we're a pretty smart church. I said that from the beginning. I'm not just buttering you up. You know your Bibles pretty well. We're a pretty smart church. We have enough biblical knowledge and enough experience to know what does and doesn't work. You're truly searching for a fix to the underlying ills of this society. Start looking there. We must go to the cross. I'm going to mention just before I pray, because it is important, that uh, there's a number of people here who have been witnessing recently and taking the gospel and having engagements and interactions with others. They have found it very exciting They have found it very affirming that they're able to bridge the gospel and talk to others about Jesus Christ. That's the direction we need to go. We don't begin to share our faith and ask the Holy Spirit through prayer to open the hearts to the words that we share. There's no other hope. There's nothing else we can do. Let's pray. Father, it shouldn't be such a hard lesson to time and time again see human institutions fail us. Lord, to get our our hopes up and then to be disappointed because those hopes were placed uh, somewhere else than Jesus. And Lord, as we think of a church and how we can impact the culture around us and our society Uh, set it firmly on our hearts that that solution, that fix, is not going to be found under heaven. It's going to have to come from heaven. And Lord, we'd ask that your Spirit would move mightily, that you'd find it pleasing in your sight to convict, convict men of sin. We'd ask that you'd find it pleasing in your sight that we would be courageous with the gospel that you've left us. Lord, and I pray that you would build your church the glory of your own Son. In Jesus' name we pray.